All right, well, tonight we're going to basically talk through Stephen's uh, great speech, his sermon on uh, in defense of uh, his his proclamation of the gospel. And uh, I do want to dig into the the speech itself, but there's a reason that I want to spend some time here, and that's uh, because chapters 7 and 8 and 9 are really crucial section of the book of Acts. It's, it's when the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem to the other parts of the world that uh, it was always the goal. It was always the end goal for the gospel to go forth from Jerusalem, right? Jesus set his face like a flint to reach Jerusalem, to do the necessary work, to fulfill the law, to become the temple. And now from Jerusalem, from the, the true people of God, the true circumcision, the word of God, the, the, the message of Messiah's coming was to go forth into all the world. And so in chapter 7 and 8, it's the, the climax of the Jerusalem Jews' rejection of the gospel, right? These are the same kinds of people that Jesus over and over and over again ran into trouble with. They did not receive or embrace or understand who he was. Um, it's also the most severe act of persecution upon the followers of Jesus to this point, right? All through the first opening chapters of Acts from chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, we see increasing opposition and then increasing violence. Then we see imprisonment, and here is where we get the first actual uh, murder or, or martyrdom of uh, a follower of Jesus, and this sparks, it, it kicks off what's called a great persecution in, uh, upon the Jerusalem church. And it scatters Jesus' disciples through Judea and Samaria and even farther than that. All right. So this is a very significant event in the story of Acts, in the history of the church. Um, the apostles, by the way, remained in Jerusalem. It also very clearly introduces us to Saul, who becomes Paul, who becomes the star of the last <laughs> half of the book, uh, the, the, the key character. Um, and so Stephen's story really begins in chapter 6, when the deacons are selected. He's one of the seven deacons selected to help sort through the issues of the daily distribution to the widows. And he, and also uh, Philip, is one of those deacons chosen. Philip's story is told in chapter 9. Uh, sorry, chapter 8. And he goes and shares the gospel in Samaria. Um, Philip is an evangelist. You know, if, when we think of, of the office of evangelist, uh, Philip most clearly fills that role. He's one of the best New Testament examples we have of a gifted evangelist. Um, the uh, teleportation <laughs> is, is what really seals the deal for me. Um, the sermon itself, Stephen's sermon itself, is a defense against particular accusations. Okay? It's, his, it's his apology uh, for what he is proclaiming. Uh, and these accusations are made at the end of chapter 6, so we'll pick up there to start. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 6. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. 
But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men. And this is a familiar tactic, right? This, this is the same tactic they used with Jesus. You know, let's just find a witness that will witness to some blasphemy and some things that we, that we need him to witness to. Who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. That's the two-part accusation. He is speaking words against this holy place, which was the temple, which, well, the temple, which was the very center of the promised land. It was the, um, you know, you could say that the holy place is the land that God had promised to his people, that he had promised to Abraham. But at this time, they did not, they were not um, possessors of that land. They were under uh, pagan rule, uh, Gentile rule, but they did have the temple. And so the temple for them was sort of like the Alamo of the promised land. All right, it was, it was the place that was theirs, okay? And so it was connected. All the promises that they claimed of the land, right? The temple was what they claimed. Uh, it, it, the temple, they, they claimed those promises by claiming the temple, okay? Does that make sense? All right. So this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. It will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. All right? He's got it out for the day. He's going to destroy this temple, and he's going to change the customs of Moses. Okay, so temple and the law. Those are the two things that obviously the, the uh, Jews in Jerusalem were worried about Stephen's uh, posture toward. And so the high priest, he, he gives Stephen a platform. I mean, that, that's at least one thing that he has going for him. And he says, are these things so? And Stephen said. And then what follows is his, uh, his defense. Um, so their summary of what Stephen had been going around preaching was that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and throw out the law of Moses. All right? Um, and his retelling of the Old Testament story is one of many in Scripture, in the, both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, of retellings of the Old Testament stories, summaries. There's a great one in Psalm 105, 106. There's one in, uh, I believe, Ezra. I forget where. Um, there's one a little later here in, in uh, chapter 13 that, Acts get, or that, that Paul gives in, uh, I think it's Pisidian Antioch. But... Uh, these recaps are not just Cliff's notes of the Old Testament, all right? In every single one of these recaps that you see in Scripture, uh, Moses does a big one at the beginning of Deuteronomy, right? He kind of retells the wanderings of the journey. In every one of these retellings, they are retold to emphasize a point. There's thousands of points you could emphasize in recapping the Old Testament story. But in each one of these, they address very particular points and they highlight very particular points of the Old Testament story. And so Stephen's retelling of the Old Testament story is tailored to address the two claims, that he, is, that he has it out for the temple and that he wants to get rid of Moses, the law of Moses, okay? 
So in his telling of the story, he highlights all the different places besides the temple or even besides the whole promised land that God shows up to be with his people. Did you notice that? He highlights the places where God came down and was with his people. Nowhere near the promised land. He also shows how Moses and the prophets themselves prefigured and foretold Jesus. And that any accurate, um, any accurate reading of the law would actually validate Jesus' message rather than condemn it. Okay, so he, he gives a reading of the Old Testament, recap of the Old Testament that addresses God's relationship with place and uh, the emphasis of the law, the whole purpose of the law. Now remember, Jesus had explained to his disciples, and this was part of the apostles' doctrine that they were devoting themselves to. Jesus had explained to his disciples all the things in the law concerning himself. That the law and the Psalms and the prophets, they were all, they all boiled down to this, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise. That's the Old Testament message if you're reading it right, if you're reading it the way that Jesus fulfilled it. So what Stephen does is he turns the accusations right back on the accusers and says, no, you're the one who's abusing the temple and you're the one that, that actually the law does speak about, but you're not who you think you are in the story. <laughs> All right? And this is what, that's, this is, that's kind of the gist of his sermon. And so he interprets the Old Testament far more faithfully than the supposed guardians of the scriptures, the, uh, the gatekeepers of Torah. Um, so he walks through and he presents it in kind of four eras of Old Testament history. Uh, five, if you count sort of the age of the prophets at the end, where he starts to bring in the messages of the prophets and he starts to quote them verbatim. Uh, but the first one is Abraham. Okay? Obviously, if you're going to tell the story of Israel, you have to start with Abraham. It's the beginning of the Israelite people. So he tells the story of Abraham and the patriarchs. And the way he says it, he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Right? God went to him because he saw in Abraham someone that he wanted to call to himself. So God was not waiting for Abraham to come to the promised land so they could meet with him there. God went to him in Mesopotamia. It's the God of glory. Right? Glory dwells in the tabernacle. Glory is in the temple. Glory is in the mercy seat. Glory is behind the, the veil. Glory is in the holy of holies. Well, this is the God of glory who went on a trip to go call Abraham to himself. He went somewhere else before he lived in Haran. And he said, go from your land, from your kindred. Go to the land that I will show you. But he says, even Abraham, he died without actually any sort of claim to land. I mean, he had the promise, but he didn't own any of it at that point. This is Abraham. This is the the father of our fathers. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. So clearly for Abraham, meeting with God was not dependent on 
a particular place. God was available to him. God went to him where he was. And he says God gave him the, the other thing he says, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. It's the promise that's important. It's not the, it's not the place. Now, God does give them a place, and place is not unimportant. But Stephen's saying, you're, not, you're placing the wrong emphasis on place. You don't understand what God was getting at with the place. Okay, let me show you all the places in Scripture where God gives himself to a people. God binds himself to a people and goes to that people wherever they are. God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. He was entering into a covenant with him as a person. Right? So the people that God is in relationship with, is in covenant with, are not bound to a place. They are bound by the covenant of God. Okay? Then he gets to Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, the other theme that he's weaving in here is the chronic tendency for the people of God to reject the agents of salvation <laughs> that God sends them. Okay? This is, for obvious reasons, this is important. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And Stephen then begins to talk about Egypt. And he just keeps repeating Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. Egypt, for a Jew, was the world. It's evil. It's the place that God delivered us from. And all he talks about, about Joseph, is that, hey, he was in Egypt and God was there. God was there in Egypt. And in fact, God said, hey, let's bring the whole family down here to Egypt. (laughs) So you see what he's getting at, how he's emphasizing the place. Sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. God was there. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt and over all his household. He, he began, Egypt experienced prosperity because God's people were in Egypt. Now this doesn't sound like, this doesn't sound like what the Jews of that time were longing for, right? We want independence. We want a national identity. We want to throw off Roman oppression. We want a Messiah who will come with a sword and who will finally mark off our land and claim what's ours. And he says, not quite. Not quite. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. So they end up in Egypt. Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. But as the time of the promise drew near, now this is the third major chapter. So the first one's Abraham, the second one's Joseph. Joseph is sent away by the other brothers, but God's still with him. And the whole family ends up moving down to Egypt. Then he begins the third and the longest Era, he emphasizes and he spends a lot of time talking about Moses, which makes sense because the, the particular accusation against him was that he disregarded Moses. He wanted to, to change the laws of Moses. He goes, okay, let's talk about Moses. And he spends a lot of time talking about Moses. As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, which was you'll be enslaved or you'll be in a, in a country that's not yours for 400 years. Um, he had said that back in uh, chapter, in, in verse 6. God spoke to this effect, that his offspring 
would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. That was the first part of God's promise to Abraham. Abraham, you're going to have a great land, but not for a while. And in fact, you're going to spend a lot of time in a land that belongs to others. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to visit you and bring you up out of that land. And so he says the time of that promise drew near. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt a king who did not know Joseph. At this time, verse 20, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. (laughs) He was taken out of his father's house and was raised as an Egyptian. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed, as any rational person would, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. You see what he's emphasizing here about Moses. These people, they're all about Moses. Uh, Stephen, you don't care about Moses. And he goes, I do care about Moses. I care about him more than you do. Let me show you how. They did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? And you can hear this, a little sadness in Stephen's heart. He's talking to his brothers. Why are you doing this? Right? This is a family fight. This is a sibling skirmish here. All right? Stephen is a brother of these people. Remember, they're all Jews at this point. A large part of them. This is the Jerusalem church made up of Jews. The gospel has not broken out yet. Paul's not even the apostle to the Gentiles yet. They haven't quite figured that out. The sheet hasn't come down from heaven. Peter hasn't had his vision with Cornelius. None of that's happened yet. Stephen's talking to his brothers. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, which is what they were accusing Stephen of doing to Moses. Thrusting him aside. He says, no. Your forefathers thrust Moses aside in the very law that you claim is yours saying who made you a ruler and a judge over us do you want me do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday at this retort Moses fled here we go again and became an exile in the land of Midian (laughs) he's not even from one foreign country to another where he became the father of two sons. Now, when the 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of fire in a bush. And what follows is a description of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush in the wilderness. This is not a temple. This is not a tabernacle. This is a bush in the wilderness. Now listen to how he describes it. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The false witness is said of Stephen, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. Well, let's talk about a holy place. Let's talk about a bush out in the wilderness as a holy place. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they had already rejected once, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, this man led them out. Brought them out into the wilderness. So we're still not in the land of promise. We're in the wilderness. And in the wilderness for 40 years, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, this is the Moses who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. But guess what our fathers did? Very clearly written down for us. Very tragic chapter of our nation's history, but it's there nonetheless. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Can you believe it? They received the laws by an angel, the, the, the living oracles that they would. We want to talk about law? Well, guess what? Our fathers have a perpetual problem with keeping the law. <laughs> the law itself testifies to that. Make for us gods who will go before us. And they made a calf in those days, and he keeps telling the story. And it's not a story of the history of salvation. Like you could tell the story of the Old Testament. Find all the places where God was working and moving forward his plan of salvation, right? That's a wonderful way to read the Old Testament. That's not how Stephen's reading the Old Testament. He's reading the Old Testament as a history of rebellion. It's not a history of salvation. God's doing what God's doing because God's faithful. Well, let's see how the people of God fared during that time. Well, it was just rebellion after rebellion. So who are we in the story here? And whose story is this? God turned away, gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And then he begins to, to, to quote prophets who were prophesying against the people of Israel. For the way that they were uh, abusing the temple. Well, really, they were mixing idolatry with temple worship. And uh, how they were rejecting the law of God. Those are the two accusations that they have against Stephen. You want to destroy the temple. You don't care about the temple. You don't care about Moses. And he says, let's just listen to the story and see who doesn't care about the temple, who doesn't understand the temple, and who doesn't understand Moses. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness 
just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. And this is the beginning of the fourth and final era that he covers in his Old Testament story. Who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. The essence of the Davidic covenant, which we've read recently, includes this exchange between God and David, where David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, thanks, but no thanks. I I like the heart. I like the sentiment. But I don't dwell in houses built by human hands. I want to make you a house. My whole point is not finding a place for me to live. My point is finding the people that I'm going to pour myself into and watching those people be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this is why I created mankind in the first place. Not because I wanted a place to dwell, but because I wanted sons and daughters. This is what Stephen highlights about the way he called Abraham. He entered into covenant with him. It wasn't about the place. He wasn't concerned with the national boundaries. I mean, those were a late development, Stephen's saying. That's such a late development in the story. You're misunderstanding the whole story. He asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. And this was true. David had it in his heart, but he never executed the plans of the temple. Solomon did execute the plans of the temple, which was glorious in its construction and in its symbolism. But ultimately, God continually makes it clear uh, to Solomon, even before the temple's begun, that this isn't, this isn't the end goal. I like this. We can learn a lot through this. But this isn't the final, this isn't the final stage, right? This just is, is a type and a symbol of a heavenly reality as Hebrews would say. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. This is the fundamental difference between Yahweh and all the idols. You could build something with your hands and worship it. And that was an idol. You could build a temple with your hands, but that's not where God was. right? In the center of the temple was not a figure of God, but just a throne where he would come and meet with his people. There was no likeness of God. Second commandment. Don't make for yourself any likeness. Don't try and represent God in your own imagination, in your own craftsmanship. As the prophet says, and this is from Isaiah 66, which is an incredible chapter that makes perfect sense, given what we know now, but it's understandable how these people would have missed not really understood the point of it. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? <laughs> I, you, can't, you can't build a house that can contain me. Did not my hand make all these things? What are you going to make with your little creaturely hands? What could you possibly make? My, my hands made heaven and earth. What do you got? That's what he's saying. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised In heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. You 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 want to honor the tradition of the fathers? Well, you certainly honor the tradition of the fathers. 
Because all through the Old Testament, there is falling away after falling away. There is idolatry after idolatry. There is rebellion after rebellion. Jesus has come. Jesus of Nazareth have come because of God's great faithfulness, because he promised and he stuck with you through all of that idolatry and apostasy and rebellion. Jesus has come to put an end to all of that and to fulfill everything that you were trying to fulfill and and not really succeeding. He has come. He is the temple. He is the law. And everything that the prophets were pointing toward, he is that. But just like every other time in the Old Testament that God tried to come down and deliver you, bring you out of that idolatry, give you a way out, bring you to repentance, your neck was always stiff. Right? A stiff neck can't turn. And that's what repentance is, is turning. You've never found repentance. And you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. And that would have just been a blow to them. Right? Because our national identity is the circumcised people of God. That was the sign. That was the mark. And he says, your heart and your ears are uncircumcised. It's why you don't understand what the law is actually saying. It's why you can't see what the temple is actually for. Because you're not the people of God. You're just like the rebellious children that God, that in spite of whom, Jesus has come. So one very simplistic way of saying it is that what the point of the sermon is that it's not that it's a people, not a building. You know, that's one way the one thing we say about church. The church isn't a building, it's a it's a people. It's very true. It's always tempting to 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 conceive of the people of God or to conceive of of, of church as a building or an organization or institution. It is and always has been and always will be a relationship between God and his people. First and foremost. So the big points of his sermon are, number one, on the holy place. Okay? What do I say about the holy place? God has bound himself to a people and will be with that people wherever they cry out to him. And whenever they cry out to him. That's it. God wants to be with his people wherever they are. And if you are eliminating If you are resisting the Holy Spirit by saying you can't experience God except in the courts of this temple, then you're off base. You have no idea what you're talking about. And then on the law, so he's addressing the accusation about the holy place, the temple, and then the law. And he's saying, let's read the law. The law is in many ways an indictment of the people of God. It's one long indictment. Right? It, it, that's one way of reading it. That's how he has read it for us here. A people's, uh, an indictment of a people's inability to faithfully respond to the gracious and saving initiative of God. God keeps taking initiative. He keeps offering salvation. He keeps bringing them into deliverance. And just like it, it happens in a cycle over and over and over, he brings them out of Egypt and they construct a calf to worship on the other side of the Red Sea. Right? And it just happens over and over and over. God saves. You can read the book of Judges. It's, it, that's, that's the story of Israel. 
God saves, it's everything's great, they fall into idolatry, and then everything goes poorly, then they cry out to God, and because he loves them, and because he's their God, and he's promised himself to, to them, he saves them, but after that salvation, there's a rebellion, there's a falling away. The law is one long cycle of that. And so he points out that they are simply following along with this well-established and well-documented trait of their fathers. Their track record is not good (laughs) in terms of the reception and the recognition of God's chosen agents of deliverance, Moses, Joseph, right? They were all rejected by the majority. So where do they, and this is Stephen's big point, where do they get the idea that they have some sort of moral superiority? Where do they get the idea that it's a good idea to reject Jesus? That Torah would have them reject this man. Not good. It's tone deaf, is what he's saying. You don't understand Scripture. All right, and so obviously... Uh, what happens next is, is inevitable, right? They grind their teeth at him and go, kill him. I mean, they take him out of the city and they stone him. But he, it's a beautiful scene. He looks up and he see, um, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He sees into the real temple, the heavenly temple, where God actually is. And Jesus is up there standing in honor of Stephen, in honor of his faithfulness, in honor of his witness. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. How, how, how symbolic is that? We don't want to hear it. Right? They're stopping their ears when he's proclaiming Jesus to them. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And immediately, Luke brings in Saul. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is the crucial tie-in at this point in the, in, the, in the story of Acts. This is the crucial tie-in for why this story is so important. Um, okay, so that's why, that, that's why I think... We need to really understand what's going on here. This is sort of the final, in Jerusalem, this is the final showdown between the followers of Jesus and and the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, okay? They pretty much um, reject him for good. And it's really the last opportunity that they have, if, if you can call it an opportunity, it's really the last opportunity they have to receive Jesus the Messiah there in Jerusalem. Paul's gonna go, and in, in chapter 13, he tells in Pisidian Antioch, he tells the synagogue there, hey, in Jerusalem, they've rejected this. And he says, and now it's looking like you guys are going to reject it too. We're headed to the Gentiles. Okay, this is really the last stage of God's plea, of Jesus' plea to his brethren. Right? The kind of heart and the kind of sorrow that Paul has in, in Romans uh, 10, when he says, I wish that I myself could be cut off. I wish that I could be accursed for the sake of my brethren. God gives them chance after chance after chance. Okay. <clears throat> so what kind of application can we, you know, how do we apply this to our lives? I, I, it, it's a tricky part because 
This is sort of a, a uh, intra-family issue, right? An intra-Israel uh, conflict. And so we kind of looking into it as Gentiles, okay, well, what can we learn from this? Well, I think one thing we can learn as the, as the church of Jesus is that we receive from, you know, all through the Old Testament, there are times, in addition to the story of rebellion, it's also a story of, there are moments of repentance and renewal. And all through the Old Testament, we see when these moments of renewal come, it comes when the word of God is embraced again. When scripture comes into focus, I think of King Josiah, right? When they found the law and looked at the law and looked at the society around them and went, oh my goodness. And they tore their clothes and they brought themselves back into line with God's word. This is something, and and it happened in Ezra's day. It happened many times in the history of Israel. This is something that the church, I think, inherits from the history of Israel that needs to continue. The constant renewal by the self-examination, by by the examination of ourselves according to the word, according to scripture. We constantly need to evaluate, are we doing things in a scriptural, biblical way? Okay? So in some ways, this is a story about reading scripture. Okay? That's 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 really the debate. Okay? We know a lot about temple and Torah. And Stephen says, yeah, you do, but have you thought of it this way? Scripture is always true and good, but it's not always on our side. And this is what Stephen was telling them. Hey, your side is not the side of Scripture. And you need to see that about yourselves. This is something that we can take, and I think, as an exhortation into our lives. Do we always assume Scripture will stick up for us? (laughs) Or are we interested in seeing the good, bad, and the ugly about ourselves through the eyes of Scripture? They stopped their ears. They didn't want to see the ugly parts of their heritage, which they were guilty of. They didn't see the admonition, the warnings in Scripture. So they stopped their ears. So the Pharisees were defending an interpretation of Scripture that essentially misunderstood and reworked God, the God of Scripture, into an institutionally self-preserving God. Hey, we know what we're about, and we can see in Scripture things that will reinforce this. Right? That's the same as trying to fit God into a house that you built with your own hands. You understand that? Their idea was basically God is the best and greatest Pharisee. (laughs) And I think we need to check ourselves. Do we see Jesus as the best and greatest version of who we want ourselves to be? And so we follow him because he will make us more of the self that we aspire to be. Or do we actually let him dismantle our aspirations? And then build them up according to the will of God. So I ask you, so that's, that's one. We can apply this to the way that we read scripture. Okay? Because it's really a, sh- a showdown about interpretation of scripture. So we can ask ourselves, do I read the story of Jesus basically 
as the best, he is the best version of what I want my life to be? Because it's funny, the gospel of Jesus can be co-opted to any number of widely diverging ideologies. All the time. And it's just, it's the same thing that's happening here. Oh yeah, Jesus is basically a really good version of what I want my life to be. Or do I let scripture read and master me more than I use it to defend or even like soothe myself? You know, we can, we can approach scripture to just kind of soothe ourselves. That's not, that's not often what it, what it needs to do. The other thing this tells us about reading scripture is that our approach is everything. Our posture is everything. Our paradigm is everything. Okay, Stephen interprets, he reads the Old Testament from a completely different paradigm as his Jewish opponents. And their version of the Old Testament reinforced their ideas of the temple, their ideas of the law, their customs. Stephen's interpretation of the Old Testament highlighted Jesus and highlighted the failure of the people of God and the faithfulness of God in spite of that failure and the culmination of that faithfulness in the person of Jesus. And so any version of the story that doesn't end with us decreasing, us and our own constructions decreasing and being dismantled, and Jesus increasing to the glory of the Father is amiss. All right? So that's the first application. This, this story can really help us read Scripture in a better way. I mean, it does a great jo- a job of interpreting the Old Testament, but it also shows us what interpretation is there. It's Jesus-centered. The second thing is that this, is, this shows us how to do apologetics, how to defend the faith. And I think it's so important that the, that the story continually highlights that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told his disciples, don't think about your response ahead of time. And so Stephen was not a master apologist. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, which was why he was able to speak such a powerful word against his accusers. He was not trained in Messianic Jewish hermeneutics of the Old Testament. He never took that course. His apology was the exact right one for the particular people at that particular time, and that's only possible by the Holy Spirit. The way Luke presents this story, as I've said, is much more than... The way that this story in the book of Acts is much more than an isolated episode is proof of this. Right? Stephen is doing more than just defending himself against these accusations. He's ushering the church into a new age, a new, a new era of growth and expansion. Okay? And that couldn't have happened if he just pulled out the argument that he had memorized when people accuse him of not appreciating Moses and wanting to destroy the temple. Okay, so we don't pre-rehearse arguments we fill ourselves with the word, we fill ourselves with the spirit, 
And in the moment that is required, we gaze into heaven, full of the Holy Spirit, and we see Jesus, and we speak in honor of him. So when we're witnessing, or even finding ourselves defending the faith, which I believe, you know, in our generation will increase more and more the need to defend the faith and articulate who we are and who Jesus is against attacks from within Christianity and from without. We are not to function in a merely intellectual or apologetical capacity. We will say the right things to the wrong people at the wrong time if we function in that way. Stephen did not say the right things to the wrong people at the wrong time. He said, these people need to hear this word, and and the gospel moves forward. The story of the church, the history of the church moves forward as a result. We are to rely on the Spirit, speak the words that he gives us to say. And in doing so, just like this Stephen story, it turns an isolated exchange or an episode into a much more meaningful chapter in the story that God is telling through our lives. So a random interaction with someone who has a, an argument against God, someone who's full of the Holy Spirit can respond in a way that really does move the kingdom forward in that person's life and in your life in a way that you never would have if you were just rifling through the arguments that you had pre-recorded in your head and spouting those out. I'm convinced that the way that Luke tells his story hints to us that Stephen's martyrdom, in addition to being what it needed to be for the Jewish leaders, it was a necessary catalyst to eventually bring Paul to conviction and full repentance. He had to tell those things to those people at that time in the presence of Paul. And he had to be stoned as a result be martyred as a result. And I believe that that was necessary for the gospel to begin to move into its next phase, which was spearheaded by this man, Paul. And I believe that the the way that Luke tells the story is evidence of that. Because immediately when Stephen dies, and there's Saul. Chapter 8 begins with, and Saul approved of his execution. So this is spirit-filled apologetics. Right? He takes him to task, and it's great. Right? He runs circles around him. But he did it in the spirit. And it accomplished much more than winning an argument. Right? It brought Paul into the picture. It brought the gospel into a totally different phase. It went exponential after this. And it was all because he was full of the spirit and of faith, and he obeyed, and he spoke boldly. By the way, it's highly likely that Stephen could have conceived of a way in which to de-escalate the crowd and the accusations and and perhaps even get off, right? I mean, but instead he was obedient to the spirit, to the point of death. And as we've seen, that Jesus stood in his honor, right? Jesus said, this is what I'm looking for. This is a real deacon, right? Talk about a deacon, this guy's not setting up chairs and running the soundboard. This guy, this guy is, is witnessing and defending the faith. 
So that's the, that's the story of uh, Stephen's sermon. This is one of the greatest sermons in the book of Acts. Acts gives it a, a lot of space. And I think it's not just because of the exchange itself, but because of the way the story and the move of the kingdom is shifting. And here comes Saul. There goes Philip to Samaria. There goes Peter um, to uh, Simon the Tanner's house. And the ministry and the mission to the Gentiles begins to uh, come into fruition. Uh, so this is awesome. Stephen, what a guy. And what a, uh, what a moment in the history of the church. Uh, so let's pray and uh, we can go from there. Father, thank you for this uh, story. Thank you for your servant, Stephen, and for how um, boldly he testified uh, through Scripture uh, to, to, the, to the glory of Jesus and to the fulfillment of your promises through Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would make us uh, reliant on your Holy Spirit like Stephen and that you would make us good readers, good interpreters of your word like Stephen. Uh, Lord, we can learn so much uh, from this man that you honored at the point of his death and that you uh, stood and uh, ushered into your kingdom, ushered into eternity uh, as he gazed upon your face. And so we just remember him. We remember um, that you send your Holy Spirit to, to make these very same kinds of things possible through our lives. And so I pray that you'd fill us with uh, wisdom and with timely words uh, for the people around us. Even though it may cost us dearly, even though it may uh, trigger hatred. And uh, Lord, we, we believe that through our uh, faithful proclamation of the words that you put on our heart to the, to the people around us, that you will move the kingdom forward through our lives and that you will uh, uh, call people to yourself, that you will glorify yourself through us as we lay our lives down for you. Lord, send us into this week with um, great boldness, but also humility. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be quick to I proclaim you into this uh, materialistic season, Lord, that we would uh, lift up your name. I pray for our week, Lord, that it would be full of um, joy, that it would be full of uh, encouragement, of comfort in the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that we'd be able to bless uh, our families, all the people that we don't get to see very often that we're going to see in this season, that we'd be a blessing to them. And Lord, perhaps that you would... Uh, Give us opportunities to share the gospel in ways that, that we haven't shared it before, with people that we haven't shared it before. Uh, Lord, help us to take every opportunity. Help us to be full of the Holy Spirit and of faith at all times uh, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.